Begin and end every great trip with Diamond Airport Parking. Diamond offers car-to-curb service, 24-7 airport shuttles, fantastic rates, complimentary bottled water, plus no one beats the friendly staff. Diamond Airport Parking, just off I-80 and Redwood Road. Park, ride, and save. That's Diamond Airport Parking. Time to talk a little BYU football now. The Cougars are going to Tennessee. Going to Knoxville, Josh Ward, radio host for WNML in Knoxville, Tennessee, host of the Locked on Vols podcast. He joins us now to talk about the Volunteers and the Cougars. Josh, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. So, Josh, I was uh, I don't know if I saw the score on the ticker or on Twitter, but I saw Tennessee-Georgia State 14-14, and I got over to ESPNU in a heartbeat, and so I watched the last, I don't know, two and a half quarters or so. And I was stunned at how easy it was for Georgia State to run the ball and control that game. Now, I'm just parachuting in in the middle of it, so maybe I shouldn't have been stunned. Uh, What was your reaction watching that game? I was stunned. There was no talk leading into the game of Georgia State possibly being able to upset Tennessee. And in the middle of the game, sitting in the press box, I did turn to a few people to my left and right and asked, are we watching a game where Georgia State can pull off an upset? And at that point, Tennessee still had a lead, 17-14, fairly early in the third. Georgia State came out, scored a touchdown. And I think at that point, a lot of people agreed that there was a game here. Uh, It was still difficult to believe that Tennessee would actually lose it. But that's what we watched, even when Tennessee was able to come back and uh, take a 23-21 lead. It was all Georgia State from there, and Tennessee was embarrassed uh, with the way that it played, and uh, it, it never should have gotten that close. And in the end, Georgia State has a 15-point lead with just a few seconds to go before Tennessee tacks on a meaningless touchdown to make the score more respectable. But there was really no respect left for Tennessee there with with the way things went. So when you listen to the players afterward, everybody was shocked and it's unacceptable and whatnot. And, you know, it seems like they were saying what needed to be said. But what does that mean going forward to this week? Because at least on paper, I don't know how the game's going to turn out, but on paper it looks like BYU would be a better team than Georgia State. It's a good question, and I don't know if anybody has a surefire answer right now, and that includes Tennessee's head coach. Uh, Jeremy Pruitt has talked about players responding and cleaning some things up and you know, being okay with what the game plan was last week, um, we have a result that shows that whatever the plan was, whatever they had done to work on getting ready for Georgia State wasn't wasn't right because of the way things went. And how will players respond is one of the biggest questions this week because Tennessee had the performance on Saturday against Georgia State that was so disappointing. But also at the end of last season, Tennessee finished with two clunkers, getting blown out by Missouri by 33 points and losing to Vanderbilt by 25 points. So a lot of the players that we've talked about coming back, and Jeremy Pruitt talked about building stronger relationships with those players and strengthening the culture and having nine months to get ready for this season – and we are having similar conversations to what we were talking about at the end of last season. If if we see the same thing from Tennessee this Saturday, then we have our answer. If Tennessee is able to turn things around and play well against BYU, if Tennessee can get a win against BYU, it doesn't solve everything, but at least buys Tennessee some time. If Tennessee plays like it did this past weekend, this upcoming Saturday, then I would say good luck to Tennessee in getting anything figured out when you still have your entire SEC schedule remaining. So sometimes you have a team run the ball on you like that because of talent issues, but sometimes it comes down to heart and passion issues. When you bring up the end of last season, it makes it seem like there's some disconnect and that that's really heart and passion issues. 
Am I reading what you're saying right? I think that's part of it. Um, another part is that I don't know that Tennessee has one defensive lineman that right now stands out as a high-level player. Tennessee had a transfer come in named Aubrey Solomon, and there was a lot of attention on him in the offseason as he was waiting to have his uh, – his eligibility granted by the NCAA as an undergraduate transfer, and that was given last week. And I think that created a little bit too much excitement about what it would mean for Tennessee's defense. I don't mean that to knock him. It's just that I said last week going into the game, temper expectations with what he will do and what that will mean for Tennessee's defensive line. And in the second half, particularly in the fourth quarter, Georgia State just did what it wanted to, lining up and running against Tennessee's defensive front. Now, Tennessee is expected to have a senior linebacker return this week. He did not play last week, Daniel Batuli, but he's not an all-SEC guy, and he's going to be on a pitch count, it looks like. He's not been practicing in full, and Jeremy Pruitt compared the snap count that he'll probably see to what Trey Smith, a Tennessee offensive lineman, saw last week, and Trey played less than half the game. If that's the case with Daniel Batuli, I don't think he makes that big of a difference, so Effort has to be some kind of issue when you get pushed around by Georgia State like that. But there is also a talent issue with what Tennessee has up front on the defensive side. So they bring in a new coordinator over there from Georgia, and then T. Martin comes back, and he I think he's a receiver's coach. Obviously, he's a legend in Tennessee history and all that. But I'm wondering, it's only one game, but what is the identity of the offense? Well, I think the identity is that uh, Tennessee knows it has an issue with its offensive line, and there's only so much you can do with that. Tennessee has been trying to figure out what the best five or six for that offensive line is. And in the meantime, Tennessee has a number of skill position players who they have legitimate confidence in. They have some good wide receivers. Tight end Donald Anderson's a good player. They have some running backs that can hit some home runs. Ty Chandler is a game breaker. A uh, talented true freshman named Eric Gray, a former Michigan commit, high school All-American. They, they have some players there. What can Jarrett Garantano do, the quarterback who now comes in as a fourth-year player? He's played a lot of games. Uh, so I'm kind of describing what the offense is. What's the identity? I think it's getting the ball out quickly to those players that I just mentioned and seeing if they can make some plays, make guys miss. The problem is they kept making mistakes on the offensive side, whether it was lack of protection or bad throws from Garantano uh, or turning the ball over. Tennessee kept getting in its own way. A wild stat that nobody would have predicted with the outcome is that last week Tennessee only punted the ball once against Georgia State. If you had told me that was going to be the case before the game, I would have said Tennessee scores 50 points. Instead, Tennessee needed a late touchdown to get to 30 against Georgia State. So they have some players, but they still have a lot to figure out on the offensive side. I'd say like BYU, Tennessee is having the conversation of we've got to take care of the football. If we do that, we can put some points on the board, but that's a big priority after the first game. Josh Ward, radio host for WNML in Knoxville, Tennessee, and host of the Locked on Vols podcast. Join us on the Sprint special guest line. Lease any handset, get an iPad for ninety nine ninety nine. Visit the local Sprint store near you. So when you talk about the issues on the offensive line, do they have more issues run blocking, or do they have more issues pass blocking, or are there issues with both? Uh, there can be issues with both. I think with pass protection, a concern is just all around. Do the tight ends do a good enough job? Uh, there were issues where running backs just whiffed on blitz pickups, uh, wh- either whiffed or just got destroyed. Eric Gray gave up a sack because he was just pushed over by an opposing linebacker who came toward Jarrett Garantano and uh, was able to knock him to the ground. I thought the offensive line was better in pass protection last week. Uh, run 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 blocking needs to be better. Tennessee was stuffed with seven offensive linemen on the field on a third and short quarterback sneak attempt, 
which was pretty embarrassing. That's what led to the one punt attempt from Tennessee last week. So uh, run blocking. There's also the question at running back. I mentioned uh, Chandler and, and Eric Gray, but uh, Tim Jordan, who is probably their short yardage guy, he's banged up right now with an ankle injury. They've moved a freshman safety linebacker to running back this week because they have some depth questions there. Uh, so Chandler and Gray are, are two big-time players, but they're not big guys. They're about 200 and 195 pounds, respectively, between the two of them. So uh, th- that's a question, but Tennessee still needs to be able to run the football. They need to be able to get guys out on the perimeter because they do have some game breakers. They just have to put them in the right kind of position because I I don't know that you're going to see a lot of effective between the tackle running from Tennessee. When you look at it defensively, you've already touched on it a little bit. They're inexperienced up front, don't have necessarily have a lot of experience in linebacker, but they have experience in the back end, and so appears to be halfway decent there. And so what do you think BYU's approach could be against this defense, knowing what you know of the defense? Would they have to rely more on the run? you think they have any success throwing the ball? Yeah, the uh, the secondary, which did receive a lot of talk in August as a group that was going to be better, uh, it does have more experience. A year ago, Tennessee was starting a couple of true freshmen at corner, and that was a big problem. But Tennessee has run into problems in the secondary. One is that senior Balin Buchanan's not playing right now, and he's not really expected to play this year, but he definitely won't play this week. He's dealt with a narrowing of the spine, so there's a senior that's off the field. One of their most talented players on the team, sophomore Bryce Thompson, is currently suspended, so you take him off the field at corner and he is replaced right now by a true freshman, Warren Burrell, who struggled last week. Uh, They have a sophomore safety in Trayvon Flowers, who's well thought of, but he's still learning. And their most experienced guy, Nigel Warrior, is a terrific athlete, but he needs to play better. So um, Elante Taylor would be the other starter at corner. I think he's a good player for Tennessee. Uh, Sean Schamberger is in there. Not a lot of experience. An older guy, though, and, and Tennessee does a number of things with him. They'll send him after the quarterback, uh, playing that nickel position. So as I'm really kind of running through the personnel there, there are, uh, there are ways for BYU to exploit uh, Tennessee's defense. If Tennessee can't create pressure, then I think Zach Wilson will be able to find open receivers. If Tennessee's able to contain Wilson and get to him quickly, then Tennessee's secondary can be just fine. But uh, if there are breakdowns, that will, that will probably lead to open receivers for BYU. So getting to the quarterback will be very important for Tennessee's defense. BYU's tight end has uh, has been promising, looked good, uh, the, the, uh, Matt Bushman, uh, against Utah, and then Utah had to put a second guy on him and bracket him in the second half to kind of take him out of the, the game. Can, they, can Tennessee match up with him, or is he going to demand two guys and maybe open things up for everybody else? Well, that's something to pay attention to. Uh, Tennessee has a very talented uh, freshman linebacker, Henry Toa Toa, who should be playing more this week. He started last week. He was a high school All-American. He's a guy that looks like he's for real uh, for Tennessee. I mentioned Batuli. Does he come back? Daryl Taylor's a guy that he's an NFL prospect on Tennessee's team. You can find projections that have him as a top 30 to top 50 player overall for the upcoming draft. But the thought with him has been, can he be a pass rusher? But at outside linebacker, he was in pass coverage this week. And then is Sean Schamberger somebody that Tennessee uses or Nigel Warrior? You know, Warrior would make sense to me, but he's also a guy that I, I, I think he's better in uh, helping with the run game than in pass uh, coverage. And I think that could be an opportunity where BYU is able to find somebody that can make some plays. So it's a good question. I think that's one of the more intriguing matchups. What does Tennessee do defensively to try to stop Bushman? Because um, they're trying to still figure some things out at linebacker. They, they have some other guys. I, I didn't run through their names, but Will Ignat, Shannon Reed, they played a good amount, pretty good athletes, and, uh, and they will be options as well. But 
Yeah, Tennessee has to have an understanding of what they're doing. They struggled with uh, lining up um, before the snap, and you know, maybe that's where Batuli comes in. But uh, if Tennessee pre-snap has confusion, then BYU will take advantage. So since Fulmer, Fulmer was, I mean, we all know that story when he left in, what was it, 2008, and Kiffin was there for a season. Dooley had three losing seasons. They bring in Brooks Jones. He showed progress, and he taps out, obviously, at uh, two nine and four seasons. And then two years ago, it was just a disaster. They did not win a game in the conference. But before the prior two seasons, at least they were competitive and went to a couple bowl games and won them. How come he wasn't able to cash in and continue to build the momentum that led to the 2017 season which was prompting his dismissal. Yeah, uh, it, it, there are a number of reasons. Um, I think Butch Jones, who brought in a number of really talented football players, that's what helped them get to a position where they were able to have back-to-back nine-win seasons. 2016, they should have won more, but uh, they ran into a number of injuries that really ripped apart their offensive line. In 2016, the year that Tennessee was a preseason top-10 team, they had uh, their starting middle linebacker go out in Week 2, their best linebacker in Jalen Reeves-Maven, who plays for the Detroit Lions, go down and um, and miss pretty much all of the season after a Week 3 injury. Their best corner, Cam Sutton, who's with the Pittsburgh Steelers, go down and miss the bulk of the season. And then they, they dealt with leadership issues, I think, as well. And uh, Butch Jones probably didn't manage the roster and all that talent very well. Uh, they, they changed strength coaches. That's been a recurring issue for the last decade-plus with Tennessee is changes within the strength program, which is, uh, has kept Tennessee from being able to develop the way that it needed to. They had a, a change with their strength coach where they went to an interim coach leading into that big 2016 season. And then uh, Butch Jones, I think, worried about some of the wrong things. Um, some of the criticism that he's take, taken, I think, has been over the top. I think the criticism should have been placed in other areas within the program that he is still in charge of. But uh, fans of Tennessee are not big fans of Butch Jones right now. But uh, Jeremy Pruitt now has taken a little bit more of the criticism this week with what happened against Georgia State. And that's, that's put more pressure than I expected to, uh, to be applied on Tennessee's head coach, which makes this week so important. Josh Ward, radio host for WNML in Knoxville, Tennessee, host of the Locked on Vols podcast. So you talk about the fans and, and Pruitt and all that. You know, I, I've seen plenty of games on TV from Tennessee, and the place is packed and it's orange and white. But watching the Georgia State game, and I get it was Georgia State, and it's a holiday weekend and people have other stuff going on. But I was surprised how many empty seats there were in the end zone, and people were just looking so upset and disinterested in the fourth quarter. What's the atmosphere going to be like this week? I still think it'll be good. Uh, it'll be a night game. Um, it, it's not the only reason. The, the football product was a big reason, but um, the, it was hot this past Saturday. And I think a lot of fans, with the combination of, they didn't really care to, to watch that game, and it was hot. If you like, if you look at a photo I posted on my on Twitter, uh, a, a lot of that's in the sun, where it's just it looks empty. I mean, that's how many fans are gone. But even in the shade, in the upper deck, they're still probably only 70% full in a game where Tennessee is fighting to try to win. That's why it was a combination of the middle of the afternoon on a 90-degree day in September or August 31st, uh, that plus the football product. Fans are a little bit tired of it. All that being said, it's a night game. 
Uh, it's this is a game that I think fans have looked forward to. There's the natural buildup where over the course of the week you can kind of put that game as embarrassing as it was behind you and look forward to this game to see what happens. Also, it is the first game where Tennessee is going to be selling beer at Neyland Stadium. So that is a factor, honestly, for Tennessee fans, I'd say, uh, to be there. Last week might have been a good week to start those sales. But um, I, I think it's going to be good. Plus, there are going to be a lot of BYU fans there. So BYU will help uh, with what the overall um, attendance looks like within the stadium. I think it's going to be a good one on Saturday. They should help with the overall attendance, but I don't expect them to help with the overall beer sales. Well, last week, Tennessee really did a good job of um, of making uh, beer sales be, uh, be increased. It's just that they didn't have them available. Tennessee could have made some money this past weekend in the third and fourth quarters. Uh, they stopped after the third quarter, but in the second and third quarters, they really could have uh, ratcheted up those sales if beer was available to the fans. I promise that. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> So, Josh, you look at all of this, are you expecting Tennessee to win at home, or does BYU come in and get the win? What do you think? I don't have a great feeling for it. Uh, I do a show on Sundays, um, TV show here in Knoxville, and at the end of the show, uh, we have to make go ahead and make a pick for the next week. And I did pick Tennessee, and I didn't pick it with great confidence, but I picked Tennessee, and I said, okay, I'm going to make the pick today, then I'm just going to stick with it all week. I think it's one that comes down to the end. There's not really a scenario you can give me that would surprise me. If Tennessee wins by 10 points this weekend, I wouldn't be surprised. If BYU comes in and has a two-score lead in the fourth quarter and, and pulls off a road upset, not a, not a major upset, by the way, but a road upset, that wouldn't surprise me either. Both teams have some things to figure out from that first game. BYU's was from a much tougher opponent, as you guys know. Uh, but I, I picked Tennessee. I think Tennessee gets some things figured out, takes care of the football. But if it doesn't, Tennessee's going to lose the game, and then it's going to get ugly in Knoxville. And then also, as I said, I don't know how the players respond. Juwan Jennings, a senior wide receiver, stepping up and saying, we're going to fight, we're going to keep uh, playing hard or play harder than they did. I do buy that. I think that that'll be the case. I think Tennessee plays better, and I think Tennessee wins, but I think it's a close one, and I think it can go either way. All right, Josh, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for joining us. Hey, you got it. Thanks a lot, guys. Josh Ward, radio host for WNML in Knoxville, Tennessee, host of the Locked On Vols podcast. Sounds like they're in a pretty lousy place, PK, and they got a difficult stretch of the schedule coming up. They got to figure it out right away. They could play pretty well and still be three and four. I mean, they got Chattanooga next week, so let's not go crazy here. Well, that was one of the three. I'm not going to kid you, but after that, they got Florida, Georgia. Right, but if they're two and one going into Florida, then things can change. I'm not, I can't bury them off of one game. I can't anoint somebody the greatest ever after one game. So the opportunity there is for the Cougars to the opportunity is there for the Cougars to win. And I like it because of the desperate nature of both teams. And as a fan who likes competition, high stakes, what do you got? Yeah. That's entertaining because someone's season is going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, one especially one. for BYU because if you even at, for Tennessee, you know you still can't explain the Georgia State loss. You just can't. BYU can explain the Utah loss. They're a really good team, and we got better from week one to week two, and we went back there and we put it on Tennessee, and that gives them momentum. Tennessee 
they're really not going to be known for sure until we get past Georgia and Florida, and I think in reverse order, as you said. Uh, but for BYU, a win can change everything. For if Tennessee wins, I don't think it changes everything. If BYU wins, I think it really does because Utah very well could be the best team on their schedule. And they lose that game. All right, fine. They still got have an excellent season, having lost the to the best team on their schedule. And whoever loses is wrecked. You could argue that it's going to be very difficult. If BYU loses, then they're looking at 0-4. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. We are brought to you in part by Diamond Airport Parking. Don't take the bus tour at the airport parking lot. Diamond Airport Parking offers covered self-parking, covered valet parking, open valet parking, and free 24-7 car-to-curb shuttle service. Diamond Airport Parking since 1922. Just off I-80 and Redwood Road. Park, ride, and save at Diamond Airport Parking. Come join Tony and Austin at the FanX Salt Lake Comic Convention Friday, 10 to noon at the Salt Palace Convention Center downtown at 100 Southwest Temple. Get 15% off when you buy tickets now at FanXSaltLake.com. Use the promo code MILLER15. <coughs> Time now to talk with former Masters champion Mike Weir. He joins us on the Sprint Special Guest Line. Get $100 off the redesigned Apple Watch 4. With a new line of service, visit the local Sprint store near you. Mike, good morning. Morning, DJ. EK, you there? Yeah, I'm here, man. I'm still basking in the glow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, got, I couldn't deal with a bit of a cold. It must have been all the stress playing with you the other day. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> He was just running around, putting bets on every green, just driving you nuts, right. wasn't he? The stress of trying to right. find my ball off the tee. <laughs> no, you were, you were straight. You are accurate, for sure. It's that nice old fade, you know, kind of Fred Couples-like. Just, you know where it's going. Oh, sweet. Fred Couples-like. You'll take that. Keep talking, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so people... People are probably curious because PK's uh, playing 18 with you was the topic leading up to it, and he had he had the nerves. Could you tell he was nervous when he walked up? Because he said he was dying. Well, he, he said that when he walked up onto the range. That was one of the first things out of his mouth, and he didn't look nervous to me. So, you know, that's that's what a good professional does. You think keeps it inside, looks confident, and uh, I was watching him on the range and looked good. So I, I didn't notice anything until he said something. So I just tried to make him relaxed and he hit a great tee shot right off the first hole yeah that that that, that triple on the first hole after after the trip I, I parred the second hole i settled down a little bit uh hit a couple of grounders uh found my groove probably about the seventh hole i think i was uh i parred seven and eight i bogeyed nine and then in uh the next nine i think i had six pars and three bogues so I, I kind of got it together a little bit. But I think a lot of that was because, not so much me, it was because of you. Because after a while, you start walk. you know, you're playing with guys. And then it became, oh, I'm playing with Mike Weir. Not Mike Weir, the champion of the Masters and the, you know, multi-winner on the PGA Tour and all that. So I think it was you who settled me down rather than myself because you were so easy to get along with. And you play and have played, and probably you couldn't even count them, in countless pro-ams and with amateurs all mm-hmm. through your life. What, what, what is the response? Because really, man, I was, I was in awe of watching you play golf. Yeah, I guess, you know, when I played the pro-ams, and I, I remember, you know, kind of even my first few times on the PGA Tour, how nervous I was if I got paired with 
uh, Fred Couples or a, um, you know Greg Norman or something. How nervous I was, and or you know me myself growing up a hockey fan when I first got to play with Wayne Gretzky, how nervous I was, even though you know he's a hockey player, not a golfer, and he said he was nervous playing with me. So I get it that the you know that amateurs they they get nervous, and so my thing is just to try to I always try to make them feel comfortable and calm down and know that you know just try to make it just a casual round with 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 buddies and you know we played with uh, doc petron who's who i play a lot of golf with and who you know pk and yeah yeah you know, he's, he's easy to play with so i think and, and my buddy mike so you know we just had a good group and that's what i try to do in the pro-ams is just try to make people have a good time and feel comfortable and not take it so serious sometimes you get in these in the pro-ams and the guys are they're so jacked up they want to win the pro-am and they want to you know and, and i get that but uh, i think more importantly is have a good time and you know the good scores will happen if you have a good time so when you're playing golf now mike and you know you're you're out there with somebody and so you're chatting them up a little bit but are you working on stuff still oh, yeah, or do you just what are you doing yeah, absolutely. You know, right now this is there's not much for me to play in tournament wise. I, I may get in a, in one or two in these um, fall events, um, but I'm I'm still not sure because my status is just a past champion status, so it's it's kind of a lower status. So I'm not sure if I'll get in some. So I probably um, I am playing the Australian Open before the Presidents Cup in in early December. So outside of that, that's the only one I know I'm playing in the rest of this year. So I've got a couple months here to kind of work on some things that I feel like, you know, there were some good things that happened this year, but you know, my short game really let me down a lot this year. So, yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to spend more time on my short game, wedge game. You know, I'd, I'd struggled a while ball striking wise for a couple of years, and my driver wasn't I wasn't driving the ball very good, and you know, I've seemed to have gotten over the hump with that. And now it's, you know, so I did playing with PK the other day. I'm trying to get my wedges dialed in a little bit better, trying to pay attention to my my putting a little bit more, and certain little technique things I'm doing there with my coaches. So, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly working, even when I'm out there playing a casual round. Um, but I still want to shoot a good score, so I'm not I'm not overly technical, but I, I uh, you know, there's some things I'm definitely paying attention to when I'm just playing a casual round. Yeah, I was really fascinated uh, by your short game because your stuff off the tee, you know, no matter how hard I try or I can get lessons from whomever, uh, I'm not going to be able to hit the ball 300 plus yards. It's just not happening. That's not my game. But you know, if I'm from within 100 yards, it's really not about strength at that point. It's about precision and technique and and how you play. So I was really zeroing in on what you were doing there. I was watching your shot pre-shot routine, and I was trying to study you to see what you can do. And then you were talking about uh, talking about it a little bit as far as the ball flight and what you were looking to try to do and you're trying to hit it lower. So I went out to Forestdale yesterday to do a little practice and I was trying to think of what you were talking about when we were talking about afterward on your getting the flight a little lower on your chip shots and I promptly just screamed it about 30 yards over. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's probably not going to happen. (laughs) So, yeah, that's Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm oh, wondering, just, you know, what what would be your advice to folks like myself and others who are in that position to to try to get better in that short game area because it's not about overpowering the ball at that point. No, and that yeah, that was really my point. You're, you're exactly right. I think 
most amateurs, you know, they're, you know, um, get out there and hit balls. And let's say they get to the, the range 15 minutes before their tee time, like most people do after work and they want to get out on the course and they go right to the range. Um, I always try to tell people like, you're going to get, get the most gains out of your game is spending a little time around the green, you know, hitting some different chip shots, maybe hitting a bunker shot or two and spending some time on putting because, you know, my brother's a perfect example. He hits the ball pretty good and, you know, around the greens, he wastes, you know, he might duff a chip and chunk one and skull one over. And I always tell him, I'm like, bro, if you can just sharpen that up, you're going to save 10 shots around. It's not about so much spending time on the range. It's, it's just having a, it's almost like having a go-to shot, just finding your own standard shot, whether that's, you know, putting the ball back in your stance a little bit so you know you're going to get clean contact every time. So you just have a go-to shot. If you have a tough lie, you can just put it back in your stance and make clean contact. So I think that's where most amateurs maybe go wrong a little bit is, is spend a little more time around the short game. That's where you're going to really, like you said, TK, you know, trying to hit a 300-yard drive, you're not going to get much return on your investment by spending all that time. What are you going to gain out of that? You might maybe be able to reach a par four that you didn't reach before in two. And, but if you, you know, you might save a shot around where if you sharpen up your short game, you can save four, five, six, seven shots if you're yeah. sharp with that stuff. And like you said, it doesn't require power. It just requires a little bit of practice and, and technique. And um, yeah, you can, you can save a lot of shots that way. So you mentioned earlier about relaxing and getting out there and enjoying a round and then the good scores come. Is that good advice for amateurs? Is that good advice for a pro like yourself? Or is that good advice for everybody who's picking up a club? I think everybody. I think we, I mean, I know for myself, I, I get caught in that and taking it too serious and trying to be too perfect and trying to make sure everything is buttoned down, that you have all aspects of your game perfect. And so you... Uh, you know, you spend so much time and, and trying to make it so perfect and you forget about the fun of it and, and the creativity of it. And I know for myself, when I get in that mode, if I could just take a deep breath and relax and just go, okay, I, I just want to see the picture of my ball flight here. If it's a right-to-left shot, I really want to see that, create that picture in my head. Then then the game starts being fun when you pull a shot off um, instead of being so focused on, you know, your left elbow or, you know, trying to swing it whatever way you're – your coach tells you to do you kind of get wrapped up and then if it doesn't happen the frustration begins and then you're not having much fun so i've always found that you know the pros that i've talked to too and we talk about this kind of stuff is that the more relaxed you are you're always you know you're you're out there trying to shoot a good score so you don't have to try extra hard we're all out there trying to do our best so more fun you can have i think uh the better better scores are going to happen pro or amateur Okay, so what you're telling me, Mike, is relax, don't be uptight, and worry about every shot. And then if you hit a bad shot, don't worry about it for the next 17 shots. That sounds great, but I don't know that I can do it. <laughs> it's hard to do. It's hard to do. And I, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of not being very good at it sometimes. You know, I, especially early in my career, I was so fiery. And, um, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword. I think, you know, you having some of that um, you know that fire is really good and motivates you but uh, if you let it linger and carry on to the next hole and next hole and then all of a sudden you have tension in your grip there's a big there's a there's a little key for all the listeners is that Nicholas always talked about soft forearms you know you can have a firm grip but if your forearms are really tight you know the, the club just doesn't swing very well so my point is like when you when you're tight and you're mad at the last shot and you're carrying it it's 
it's so easy to start gripping it tighter, and then there's tension in your forearms, tension in your shoulders. Your your swing starts getting a little shorter because your all your muscles are all tight. So all those things start to happen. It's uh, a little bit heat off, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah very that, much. That, <laughs> that explains the six. Composure, hole. pretty good, PK. PK, you kept your composure. You're good. Inside, I was dying. You know, I, I I knew for a week or so that I was going to be playing with you. So I pretty much told everybody that I knew that I was going to be playing with a Masters champion, and it clearly, and it was. And I told you, and, I, and it was an honor to play with you. I didn't, I wasn't joking. It was really something special for me. And what response I got? Well, the the folks around here who follow golf, you know, oh yeah, that's cool. They don't they don't need uh, any introduction into who Mike Weir is, and even the 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 moderate golfer understands. Oh yeah, he 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 won the Masters, but but the casual golfer. Several people said to me, "Oh yeah, yeah, the smaller guy, the Canadian guy," and I, and I talked to you about this the other day. You basically are carrying the mantle for the whole country of Canada when it comes to golf, and you you provided a little insight of what it's like when you're in Canada. I was wondering if you can repeat that to how much of I don't, I don't know if the burden is the right word, but just maybe responsibility as far as the country and Mike Weir. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think, yeah, most guys on the on the PGA Tour they do they have their home, their hometown, and when they when they play host host to their home city, <clears throat> they get big fan support. But yeah, I think um, when I was younger and a young pro, it was a bit of a burden. I I, I felt the weight of it, um, and I probably paid a little bit too much attention to that. And when I wasn't doing well and you know, the old, obviously, you guys know the old story. You know, when you're doing great, you know, everybody's for you. And when you're not, you know, it seems to pile on sometimes. And when you're under the microscope and maybe when I was playing well, I was kind of like the only guy out there from Canada. Now there's quite a few more, but I felt that. And um, I felt a lot of support, too, but I did feel the burden of it. And as I've gotten older, I've, I've grown to accept it and, and uh, embrace it more. And... Uh, I try to mentor some of the younger guys a little bit, and and uh, I've come to I've come to learn it, learn and accept that that's that's part of the responsibility when you when you happen to uh, win a big tournament like that, and so it's yeah it's it's a little bit different when I go home to Canada. It's a little bit busier, I guess, when I just go out and about. That's when I'm home in Utah. It's not quite so much. You know, the golf fan might say hello when I'm out at a grocery store or something, but. Um, it's a little bit different when I go home to Canada. So, Mike, what is your uh, plan going forward now? The senior tour uh, looming out there next spring. Is that something you want to do a yeah. little bit of, a lot of? Uh, I think a lot. You know, I'm, I'm really motivated. I'm excited about my game. I'm, I'm still uh, motivated to get up every morning and work hard at it. So I love to compete. And, I'm, you know, the great thing about professional golf is we have this almost secondary chapter that you can uh you can have a great career on you know bernard Langer's proven that you know he's won whatever 40 times in this 10 or 12 years that he's been on the champions tour so you can you can make quite a nice career from 50 on so um for those who want to stay competitive like myself and i've talked to ernie ellis he turns 50 next year he's going to play a lot i think jim Furyk will when he turns next year um so there's a nice crop of guys going in next year and um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about playing out there. So I'm, I'm planning on playing a lot. I turned 50 in May, and there's still quite a bit of the season left when I turn 50. So I'll, I'll still get in probably 15, 16 events next year out there. Well, we got to get DJ out there, Mike, so we can really have some fun. Well, let's get him. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm I eliminating you, you the tightness from my forearms. That's. I'm, okay, I'm eliminating yeah, the tightness from my forearms. That's the first thing. <laughs> well, you were, uh, well, you two were golfing uh, at, at Hidden Valley. I was across the valley at a public course committing several crimes against the sport of golf. That's all I want to say. <laughs> I told PK about the round, and he was trying to be polite, but he was trying not to burst out laughing. I was so atrocious <laughs> the first four holes. And the only reason it got better the last five and I was able to play bogey golf, which for me is everything, is yep. because I quit caring about the score. It was such a disaster the first four holes. So there you go. All right, we'll keep you updated. Goes, goes to show you. I don't want to commit okay. any crimes against golf in front of you, Mike. That's really the bottom line. <laughs> well, well, we'll go to the range first. We'll spend a little time, yeah. and then uh, we'll get, I'll get to dial then. <laughs> yeah, he'll help you, man. He gave me a little tip, and I was making fun of my. Uh, pitching yesterday but my drives i went with jake scott my drives were way better yeah because uh, he gave you a tip yeah absolutely right, man he he can help your game and i want to be there to witness it <laughs> i bet you do <laughs> he wants to help you want to witness that's the difference between the two of you all right mike we appreciate a few minutes thanks for joining us no problem guys all right mike Weir, former masters champion and by the way, me committing crimes against golf and hacking up a public course while PK was golfing with Mike Weir, totally true. All right, when we come back, we've got, uh, we got an open segment or two here. Talk a little college football. Talk a little Mike Weir golf if you want to. And we got Krista Blunk, who's going to be on the sideline for the Northern Illinois-Utah game. She works for the Pac-12 Networks. She's going to join us at 930. It's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Joint scouting ends Monday, September 9th from noon to 3 at Soundsleep Medical. 8941 South, 700 East in Sandy. Earlier this morning, we had on Josh Ward, radio host for WNML in Knoxville, Tennessee, host of the Locked on Vols podcast. If you missed that, uh, this show is available through podcast. You can listen to it wherever you get your podcast. You can go to 1280thezone.com. That's easy enough. You can go to Stitcher. You can go to iTunes. You can go wherever you go for podcasts. Podcast, can... podcast, podcast. That's where it's at. That's where it's at. And, Yach, thanks for retweeting all that stuff because I have no way I would do it. <laughs> if you ever went on my Twitter handle and you're wondering how come all that stuff is retweeted, I don't do it. He does it. Way to go, Yach. You're the man. <laughs> I can do it for you, too, but you don't give me access to your Twitter. Ah, that's okay. I'll do it. You don't have to do everything. He has full access to mine. So if you ever hear a bad thing out there, it's not me, it's him. <laughs> that's what I could do. I could just get <laughs> outrageous. <laughs> well, I didn't do it. Hatch. <laughs> Hatch. <laughs> I gave him access. So you're going to make me your burner Twitter, but yeah, using yeah. your Twitter. Yeah, you see, I'll use my own and just say, no, I didn't do it. Because he retweets all that stuff on the podcasting. I don't do it, and he does it. I was swimming laps in the pool. It couldn't have possibly been me. Go check yeah, with Hatch. I was golfing with Weirzy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can do it when you're golfing with Weirzy. Now, if it's February, I might have an issue, but, you know, I'll make it up. It took me down to Palm Springs or something. 
All right, anything you uh, you took away from Josh Ward? Listen to that interview. Tennessee, and he kind of connected the dots between this loss and the two at the end of last year, suggesting bigger problems. Well, but I don't. I mean, I, because Vandy and Missouri are conference opponents, and they may not be all that. Obviously, uh, Missouri lost to Wyoming last week in Laramie, but still, if you're going to rate acceptable losses, and if you're Tennessee, there's no such thing, maybe. But certainly you're going to rank Georgia State as the least acceptable of the three. And they've now lost three in a row dating back to the two last year. Those are conference opponents. Things happen in conference games. But Georgia State at 2-10, and ten, I think they were 1-7 and seven in the Sun Belt. It's completely and totally inexcusable. And I don't think right now we've seen how would you say, an elite superpower, however you phrase it, fall as far as we've seen Tennessee fall? When you're winning six national titles and you're losing to Georgia State, and two years ago you went winless in conference, this is reminiscent of Washington going 0-12, except I would put Tennessee on a plateau higher than Washington over the years. Washington, very good. Now they've rebounded. They're very good now. But Tennessee, except for a couple of nine and four seasons, they've had a 10-year run of absolute mediocrity. They do what ASU's done. This has been the definition of mediocrity. Had a couple of decent seasons, except Tennessee obviously would be a much higher profile program. And so here now, they come in out of all the desperate times that they've had, this is the most desperate. In the last 10 years, they've been pretty desperate, but this is the most desperate. For most of Phil Fulmer's career, they were averaging 10 wins a year. Uh, it, It dropped off the last three or four years, and then they let him go. Since then, it seems like their most common record is seven losses. If you're looking for one constant, it's that they lose seven games. It's five and seven. It's six and seven. So get your ASU comparison. But this feels like, you know, they, they didn't just lose the two games at the end of last year. They got blown out. And they got blown out different ways. Vandy threw it all over the field. Missouri uh, threw and passed the ball. Georgia State, uh, yeah, but nothing I mean, threw and ran to the Georgia ball. State. I know. It's a lower notch, and it just makes it's you wonder. Ten if, times lower. It just makes you wonder if the guys have just totally turned off the coaching staff, and if they're about to roll out their Washington 0 and 12. I mean, they got Chattanooga, so maybe, but they just lost to Georgia State, so I don't know if we should even be counting on Chattanooga. So it, directly, it looks like then, a team in turmoil. That just heaps the pressure on BYU. Yeah, I agree. BYU It'll has be to win the game. Better for BYU if, Georgia, if Tennessee had won old. the game. <laughs> now, if you start 0 and 2, we can excuse to a degree. The Utah loss. Well, and we, we may find in November and December, Utah literally was the best team you played. Going into the season, I thought there were five BYU games. I already knew the outcome, too. I thought they were going to lose to Utah and Washington, and I thought they were going to win three in a row at the end of the year in November. Well, not the end of the year, because if San Diego State did. But the three games leading up to that San Diego State game in the finale. And so you could just say, okay, they're three and two. What are they going to do with the other seven games? So... Yeah, to your point, I don't make too much out of that Utah game. You know, some of the stuff that happens, how it happens. Okay, obviously you got to eliminate the turnovers, uh, so you can take that stuff away. But the outcome, the fact that Utah won the game, I think most of us were already assuming that months ago. You take away those this two stuff. picks and fumble. Yeah, and then uh, okay. 
<laughs> so now you'd fans respond, get all upset. <laughs> it's just it's what you said earlier in the show. If BYU loses this game, 0-4 seems like the logical conclusion. 0-4 and, and oh no. Yeah, exactly. And it loses game, eight wins is off the table. Lose this game and getting to bowl eligibility, it could be done, but I don't think I'd bet on it. It'd still be in play, but it'd be a reach. Win this game, look good doing it, feel better about yourself. Let's see how USC looks against Stanford. I mean, it just seems like there's these huge swings in expectations, goals, momentum. You just got to go win this game. It really, that's why I wrote about it, must win. Yeah. Go read it on our website, must win. Offensively, they've got Bushman to throw to. I think he can create some stuff for him, and they ought to be able to run the ball. So if they want to double Bushman and take him out of the game, which the Utes did late in the game, then the running game ought to have a day. And if they want to put an extra game in there to stop the run game, and when we were talking to Josh Ward, you know, is it a talent issue or is it a heart and passion issue? He thinks with the D-line, it's both. Well, how inviting is that? Go get 100 yards for Tyson Williams. Go get 150 for the team. Maybe more than that, but you ought to be able to run it, and that's going to open up the passing game. And I mean, who who have they held under thirty eight points lately? Who? It was uh, fifty Tennessee? Oh, Tennessee! Yeah, they they went out and gave up thirty eight points in the opener uh, last year in the finale to Vanderbilt. They lost thirty eight thirteen, and the next last game with Missouri, they lost fifty to seventeen. I mean, B- it's, it's outrageous. The BYU offense ought to be scoring some it's points. A joke. Okay. Thanks for that. DJ and PK, we got more college football coming up. Krista Blunk from the Pac-12 Networks at 930. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.